There seems to have been a spike of interest in extraterrestrial beings of late. I don't know if you've noticed that, but I wonder as scientific evidence of intelligent design continues to mount and overwhelm the theory of evolution, I've noticed leading atheists are lining up conceding that life on planet Earth may have been seeded here by aliens. Since 1960, scientists in organizations such as SETI, that is the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, have been listening carefully for aliens to contact us. They haven't heard anything for 40 years, and so in 2001, 40 years later, NASA began trying to contact them. NASA scientists are searching for planets that are sufficiently distant from their suns to sustain life as we know it. They're looking for then on these planets, the theory goes, CO2 levels, ozone levels, and isotopes of oxygen that might sustain life like we know it. Mission Chief Bill Baruki proposes to create, I quote his words, after they find these planets, He wants to create a probe that can travel near the speed of light and gets there, shows us pictures, listens to their radio stations and television stations, and then reports back. This is a chief director at NASA. It's curious to me that Mr. Baruki sees an organic connection between intelligent life and television. I'm not sure I see that, but without even attempting to provide a single line of evidence. The article title that I'm drawing from was Aliens Exist. In other words, because we, the gods of this world, are looking for them, they're there. There was great irony to me that in another article in this same news magazine, an article suggested that societies who believe in spirit beings are dangerously unevolved and more prone to social dysfunction than our secular societies. Here's the point as I put those two together. Enlightened people hope to flit about the universe, turning, tuning in to alien radio stations, while only knuckleheads believe in demons and angels. I'm thankful that God has spoken, that God has revealed in His Word the truth. And do you know what God's Word says about alien creatures? The same thing they say about themselves. Absolutely Nothing. If they existed, if they were out there, God has said to us and made clear to us, it doesn't matter at all. But what God has revealed is that there is a spirit realm in which angelic and demonic beings exist and engage in intense spiritual warfare. That's a realm we need to be aware of and need to deal with. Ironically, whether spending their lives trying to contact aliens or simply ignoring what God has revealed in His Word, people are in the hideous grip of demons and they participate in a raging spiritual war against God. 
That's reality that the God of the universe has made clear to us. God's Word, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, exhorts us to recognize that, I quote, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So the reality is that God has given to us, the reality is that there is a spirit realm, there is a cosmic war raging around us, there are unseen demonic forces binding people in chains of sin. But the glorious truth that is also revealed is that God's transforming power is an invincible force against these spiritual forces of darkness. And we can come together today as God's people and rejoice in that fact. We know from our God that there are spiritual forces and they are profoundly difficult to withstand. But Christ has withstood them and gives to His people the power to withstand them. What is more, God delights to use His people to channel that power to a world of sinners shackled in the chains of sin. Channeling understood in the conventional sense of the word, in a biblical sense of the word, that we are channels through whom the power of God can work. These realities are witnessed in the Apostle Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus. I invite you back to Acts chapter 19 as we continue our work through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19. Remember last week at verses 8 through 10, if you were with us, we noted here the emphasis upon Paul's ministry of the word. Reading at 19 and verse 8, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Significant period of time preaching about God's kingdom. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, unresponsiveness to God's Word, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took the disciples with Him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the Word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now what I'd like you to do is note that phrase there in verse 10, the Word of the Lord, and then work your way down to verse 20 where we find this closing phrase on this fifth chapter of Luke, that is as Luke breaks it out, I realize we're in chapter 19, but as he breaks it out, there's kind of an ending of a fifth segment or track here. And it says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now notice the phrase there, the word of the Lord, connecting with verse 10 in the word of the Lord. So what we have is something like two bookends referring to the preaching of, of God's Word to a pagan city. In between these two bookends comes the inclusion of a narrative here that shows us that Paul's ministry in Ephesus was also a ministry of extraordinary miracles and cosmic victory. The emphasis falls in Ephesus upon the preaching of the Word of God. But this battle is going on, it is raging, it is real, and we see how Paul withstands it and how he ministers God's Word and the power of God's Word in that setting. 
In this first two verses here, verses 11 and 12 of this segment, we see that Paul is authenticated by tapping God's power. He shows himself to be a servant of God in truth. Verse 11, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Paul is simply tapping the miraculous power of God over disease and God's authoritative power over the demons. He serves, again, understood in the right way, as a channel of divine power, which indicates that Paul is in league with whom? He's in league with Jesus. Note carefully the wording of verse 11. It is God who is doing these extraordinary miracles, not Paul. But they are done by the hand of Paul. You might wonder there, I hope you caught that, and you say, what what are extraordinary miracles? We hope in the theology of our church to continue to strengthen the idea that miracles are extraordinary by nature. They are supernatural acts of God. So the light turning green at just the right time is not a miracle. It might be nice, but it's not a miracle. The miracles of God are His intervention in in a supernatural way into the time-space-mass continuum. That's always extraordinary. That's what a miracle is. It seems that Luke is kind of trying as well as he can with language to say these are extraordinary, extraordinary things. These are unusual miracles in an unusual sense. And indeed, we see that here with verse 12, where handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched the skin of Paul are carried to the sick, and these people are healed of their diseases. That's strange. That's very different. That's even different than the way God does extraordinary things in miracles. Handkerchiefs and aprons. I found no one to contend with this point that these are undoubtedly pieces of Paul's work as a tent maker, as a leather worker. The words are a bit obscure to us. They're Latin loan words. They're not entirely definable, but they appear to be, if the first particularly, some type of cloth used to mop up sweat. So whether it was worn on the head or was like a handkerchief like we would know it, it was a cloth that would have been used by Paul as he was making tents to wipe sweat from his brow. The apron might have been, as we would understand it, a worker's apron or something of a similar use and uh, it's, again, it's a bit obscure. But what is fairly clear here is someone learns that Paul is working miracles. That there is divine power that is working through this man. They go, apparently, to a shop where Paul is working, and they ask for or lift one of these items and take it, run with it, and put it on a diseased person. This makes utterly no sense to us. Hang on to that. It it does make sense in the context of Ephesus. But I want to stop here before getting into that and just to make two observations. What God is doing is He is graciously accommodating the Ephesians, demonstrating on their own terms that the messengers of Jesus wielded the power of God. Pagans commonly believed that certain people had healing powers. You're living in Ephesus, the whole culture understands this. That if you touch one of these people with healing powers, you may well be healed. In fact, if you touch something that touched that person who has healing power, healing may come. 
So there's this cultural orientation that if we can take these materials and run with them from Paul, we'll be able to transfer his power, his connection with the gods of this world as they would have seen it, and there would be people who would be healed. And perhaps some of these were Christians as well, taking these things. We don't know who it was. But what we see, as Williams puts it, is that God is graciously working at their own level of understanding. God is demonstrating His power in a way that the Ephesian people would understand. There's a second thing happening here, and that is that God is authenticating Paul as his preacher of truth. Why did Jesus perform miracles? Why were the apostles enabled to perform miracles? It wasn't to draw a crowd, it wasn't to show off, it wasn't merely compassion. Paul laid out very clearly the reason in 2 Corinthians 12 when he says the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. The miracles attested to the message of the one who was proclaiming God's truth. So these miracles healing of people with disease, exercising demons from those who have been possessed, ties Paul to Jesus, ties Paul to Peter, and shows his authority as an apostle. Remember, Jesus, there was power that was coming from him. Luke chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. So that people would touch Jesus and healing would take place. You remember particularly that one woman that reached out and touched his robe. Power leaves him She is healed of her disease. Paul is being identified with Jesus here. He's identified certainly with Peter. Remember in chapter 5, people would bring the sick so that the shadow of Peter would cross over their cot and healing would come. So he's being tied to Peter. He's being tied to Jesus. And we talk in our church about our fidelity to the apostolic faith. Miracles are a significant part of that conviction. Miracles are God's objective means of demonstrating that our loyalty is not misguided in this area. Miracles are tangible, objective, supernatural evidence that Paul was indeed God's spokesman. And if Paul is God's spokesman, and we are engaged in the same mission, we too are God's representatives. If we preach a different message, indeed, even if we go after the same kinds of miracles, but if we preach a different message, we are not Jesus' representatives and we have no access to His power at all. But on that point of many who who seek to imitate the miracles of Jesus but do not hold to the apostolic faith in faithfulness as they should... Let's notice just a couple of things, and I'll let you fill in a lot of the blanks here and how this applies to our culture without taking much time. But we notice here that Paul does not sell his handkerchiefs or his aprons. He doesn't put them up for sale. He does not seek to draw a crowd to witness his miracles. In fact, we never see that in the text of the New Testament. True miracles would often draw a crowd, undoubtedly. But the miracle workers were not using miracles to draw a crowd. Come to this place at this time and I will perform miracles so that the crowd is greater. It is the message of salvation in Christ that is the draw. And miracles authenticate that message. 
Charging people for healing cloths and charging people for healing performances is the invention of charlatans. Every minister of the gospel who proposes to market the power of God is a false teacher. Run away. We see none of that in Paul's ministry. None of those shenanigans. He was not padding his wallet with these miraculous powers. Where do these claws come from? From Paul's workshop, where he was laboring with his own hands to provide his own means, not setting up tents and bringing people in and performing miracles like a circus act. Where people are marketing and seeking to get wealthy off of what is purportedly God's power, run away. It's not God's power. So Paul is authenticated by tapping God's power. What we see next is imposters who are exposed by failing to tap that same power. Verse 13, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So they're saying, Come out, demons, I adjure you by the name of Jesus. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. You notice the phrase in verse 13, undertook, or the word undertook. It is a Greek word that's difficult to translate into English, but it's something more of the idea of they put their hand to it. It has the word hand in it. And it draws an interesting connection that we don't see in the English between their hand, they are putting their hands to this task, and verse 11, where by the hands of Paul, people are healed. So by the hands of Paul, people are healed. They are now trying to put their hand to the same task. Taking the name of Jesus and saying, I adjure you in the name of Jesus, be healed, or for the demons to come out. Now just a brief journey into Ephesus. I hope we return there next week and with perhaps some graphic aid. But just a brief journey into Ephesus. This city, Ephesus, was the ancient world's hotbed for magicians, sorcerers, witches, fortune tellers, con artists, and perverts of basically every stripe. It was as perverted a city as Corinth in many respects. Maybe not quite as infamous, but it was a pagan place. It was also a place of syncretism. That is, you could play around with the pieces of the demonic realm and magic, and they were fine with that. If anything would work, indeed it really was very pragmatic at its heart, if they could get something to work, that was fine. Think of that in context of what we see here. Longenecker also comments it was commonplace in the ancient world, and especially in Ephesus, for magicians to use magical names and incantations to exercise evil spirits, to cast them out. Do you see it? Syncretism magicians running around all over the place, and this common practice of using names and incantations. There is here a battleground between magic and miracle. What is magic? Magic seeks to control the spirit world, to do your bidding by means of rituals, magic spells and recipes, reciting names, hoping to strike a perfect combination of sounds to move the God 
or the demon. We don't live in that world as such, though I have talked to people, I've talked to a man even recently who does these very things. It's out there. In the dark of night and often in remote places, there are people doing these very kinds of things in our culture. But there, it was widespread. Arnold writes, In religion, one prays and requests from the gods. In magic, one commands and therefore expects guaranteed results. So magicians, with magicians, there is also a high level of secrecy. Remember that. Miracles, in contrast, are the result of direct supernatural intervention by God, according to His grace. He's not manipulated to perform a miracle. God, in His mercy, in His sovereign power, decides to intervene in this world. That is the distinction between magicians and those who work miracles through the power of God. So, putting that together, that little historical sideline, as syncretists, these sons of Sceva have no interest in submitting to the exclusivity of Jesus' lordship. But they don't mind tapping his power in order to cast out demons. If it allows them to dictate to the demons what will happen, they're fine with the name of Jesus. This was common practice. In fact, we have fragments of text today where rabbis are commanding their Jewish followers not to use the name of Jesus when exercising demons, which indicates it was a problem. There are even texts that use the name of Jesus. They're given as the incantation has been preserved, and it uses the name of Jesus and the God of the Hebrews and things such as this. The problem is these men have not submitted themselves to the authority of Jesus and thus they have no moral authority to tap his power. And so, as Spencer puts it, it is a clash between miracle and magic, between authentic transmission of divine power, Paul, and counterfeit manipulation, the seven sons of Sceva. Well, what happens? Verse 15. In one situation, seeking to cast out a demon, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Uh-oh. That, that is not what they were hoping to hear. Witherington says that exorcists name demons and then cast them out. This demon has no idea who they are and cast them out. Verse 16, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. You can imagine watching that scene. It probably was absolutely horrifying as this man with unbelievable power overwhelms these seven, beating them, tearing off their robes, and sending them out in shame as they run for their lives. Let's contrast these who have tried to use the name of Jesus with those who know Jesus. You see the contrast with the Apostle Paul. Did people ever hurt Paul? What did he say? I bear in my body the marks of Christ. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He faced all kinds of physical opposition from people. The Apostle Paul never got a scratch from a demon. Now there's undoubtedly a demonic forces working against him, 
but only what God permits and only what people administer. Paul does not suffer anything from the demonic realm. These men receive a beating and shamefully run away naked. According to verse 12 then, as one man, Paul casts out many demons in Jesus' name. Here in verse 16, one demon casts out many sons of Sceva. As Bach notes, Apollos lacked knowledge, but knew Jesus. So we think of another man, Apollos. The sons of Sceva claim knowledge, but do not know Jesus. Apollos then preaches with courage and power, even lacking some knowledge. Sceva's sons go running away in weakness. You see the difference between God's people who truly tap the power of God and those who have no moral authority to do so. You might picture this like a little kid who has a major league baseball player that really, really idolizes. And he wants to be just like this hitter, and so he studies the hitter's stance. And this young kid, is, he spits like the guy, he digs his toe into the dirt like the guy, he bats his bat down on the, on the plate just like this, this great major league hitter. All right, let's just say it, Joe Maurer. <laughs> well, says it, right? And if you looked at him, you'd think he was him. Here's this little kid, say eight years of age, and now he steps into the plate, and now that he has imitated Joe Maurer, he's ready to take on a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. Well, the big league pitcher throws one of those puppies past his ear, and the kid's done. He realizes imitating the real hitter doesn't make you a real hitter. And that's what these guys realize. They have used the name of Jesus to manipulate God. That is not going to happen. They are shown to be imposters. Paul is authenticated because of his tapping of this divine power. Now as we move in the response to what takes place here in Ephesus, we see God magnified by the transforming power of His Word. Verse 17, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Paul was not extolled for his miracle-working powers like so many TV evangelists today. Jesus was glorified by Paul's ministry. Everyone knew where the power resided. It was clear that Jesus is not controlled by exorcists. He's not controlled by magicians. He reigns in power over the demonic realm. Jesus is the reigning power of heaven, and everyone must bow to Him. And so the name of Jesus is revered in Ephesus because of these events. Verse 18, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. As believers, they come and say, these are our practices. That is a technical term for magical arts. Now, what does miss us is the word divulging. They came divulging their secret arts. Remember what I said earlier? One of the keys of magic is to keep it quiet. Secrecy is crucial to magic. 
So by revealing the power of their spells, uncovering the secrecy, they are rendered powerless and useless. These spells. These recipes. Whatever else. This would not have been taken well by the Ephesian magicians. And what it evidences is a complete turning from sin and submission to the Lordship of Jesus. There was no turning back to a way of magic for them. They uncovered it all. This is the power of God at work. A work as great as any miracle to free people from these chains of bondage. The Spirit of God through His Word is conquering hearts, cutting sinners free from these chains of sin. And the proof is transformed lives. Verse 19, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, an immense amount of money. And it is an act of genuine faith in the living God, letting go of the supposed power of these incantations and recipes and things such as this, and letting go of wealth. Rather than sell their books for profit, they refuse to encourage anyone to continue in this lifestyle. It's an evidence of genuine salvation. I mean, hey neighbor, listen. I've, I've taken a little different course here. I've got these books They're really good books. Would you like to buy one? That doesn't cross their mind. They can't think in those terms. If I'm going to talk to my neighbor, it is going to be about the power of God and liberation from these dead things. And so they burn them. Now this was common to have book burnings in the ancient world and was for centuries. What's really uncommon is that here we have the owners of the books burning them willingly. That is very uncommon. And on the streets of Ephesus, it's unprecedented. Some of you will remember the days when rock and roll music took hold in American culture. And some of you, maybe a fewer of you, will maybe remember there was a popular youth activity, teen activity in conservative churches at the time called record burnings. After a strong message against the evils of rock and roll, teens would be invited to bring their records. They would throw them in a pile. Then they would burn them and, I don't know, get high on the toxic gases, I'm not sure. But that was, that was kind of practiced somewhat widely. And I think of that in light of this passage because this is, of course, where it comes from. It sounds really quaint to our ears now, doesn't it? Sadly, in our day, an overwhelming majority of evangelical teens listen to the world's music with the full approval of their spiritual leaders and parents. It's a very different day. The church has grown so sophisticated as to realize that music has no moral influence on the soul. And that rock music is as innocuous as potato salad. What was once the world's music is now our music. What was once burned is now coveted by God's people. But I really doubt that eschewing the dreaded legalism tag that we have been thereby rendered any more holy. 
I'll leave that point to sit there. It is obviously not the intention of the text. But I do suspect that there are some things in many of our homes that ought to be burned. Burned in the interest of holiness. Maybe there's no need to light a fire, but I would suspect there may well be a CD, DVDs, or perhaps a cable access channel or some downloadable file that needs to be deleted forever. God's power can provide the motivation for us to do just that. To take what may be dragging us down and keeping us from becoming like Christ and to get it out of the house. This power is seen because it liberates people and this power is active today in Christ. He wants to transform His people to be those who are zealous for good works, a holy and righteous and Christ-like people who have desires and cravings and love for things that are good to the core. What's in your mind right now? If the conviction of the Spirit of God is pressing upon you and saying that thing, those things, that activity, that desire, that interest needs to go, let it go. Delete it. Burn whatever you need to burn. Holiness is what matters. And we must pursue it with all of our heart. We see God work in all of His power. What we see is people being changed. These people were changed. They let go of the things of this world, of the power, of the security, of the controls that it seemed to provide, and they said, I just want Jesus. I want His mercy. I want His grace. I want to be like Him. And they turned their back and burned the bridge. We may mock those who zero their life focus on finding space aliens. We may weep for their failure to see the reality of the spiritual battle that is raging everywhere around them. But as God's people, we have our own blindness to address. How often is our focus so fixated on the passing pleasures and decaying toys of this world that we live in ignorance of the spiritual war that is raging around us? That wasn't possible in Ephesus. That real spiritual war was seen. It was evident everywhere. But in our culture, Satan largely seems to go underground to work by stealth. And how often we are in his web and don't even realize it. The glorious truth of this text is that Jesus reigns supreme over the powers of darkness. And we can be assured, greater is He who is in you than he who is in the world. The great truth of this text is the Gospel of Christ who conquers Satan and defeats death. What we see in the work of Paul in these miracles is not simply attention-getting means. What we are seeing here is the conquest of Jesus Christ over death and the demonic realm. It's breaking out in the work of Paul 
And it will eventually break out in fullness in the return of Christ. He has won the victory. We see the truth that power over sin and power to transform lives is found only in Jesus. There are many who propose to tap the miraculous powers of Jesus through signs and wonders and evangelism. And I I really would never fault their faith or their enthusiasm to advance the gospel. I just think that they're trying to force into their own experience apostolic matters, to conform to the apostolic era in ways that are just unnecessary and are not really there for us today in the same way. But we do have power over this demonic realm. God has that power and He will grant that power to His people as we are holy and trust Him in faith. We have power over the demonic realm. The key is whether the power over the demonic realm has us. Jesus defeated the powers of darkness. We have salvation. May we trust in His power to defeat sin in our lives and to bring people to saving faith in the gospel. As God's people, we can tap the power of God, the power of His Word to transform. But for us, the battle, I don't think, is to go in in exercising demons and healing diseases as much as it is to battle in prayer and in the ministry of the Word. To take this same power and to tap it through prayer and to take the same Word that is administered by the Spirit of God and transforms lives, that takes people bound in the chains of sin and liberates them, setting them free by the power of the Gospel. This is our endeavor. It may not look as exciting as the Apostle Paul. In fact, I don't know anybody that's been asking for my sweat cloth recently. It's, it's, it's much more mundane for us in that sense. But we are wielding the same power. God's Word can set captives free. I think of this as I think of the Apostle. Did you hear what the demon said? I know who Jesus is. And I know who Paul is. He think of that. This demon is saying, we know that man. He's trouble to us. We don't have a clue who you are. And I wonder, as you consider yourself in the work that you are doing in prayer to move God to transform lives, the work that you're doing to proclaim the gospel, the holiness of life that you are pursuing, I wonder, do the demons know who you are? Do they know who I am? Do they say, there's somebody who's trouble for us? Not because of who we are, our power, but because of the power of God working through us in lives that are submissive to His call upon our lives. Or maybe you say right now, I think the demons are pretty gleeful. If they've lost my soul, they've got me pretty well bound up in their ways. They're not afraid of me at all. If that's how you would answer, then I would say you need to put your finger on what it is that is separating you from right relationship with God and you need to burn it. 
leave it behind? Are you actively tapping the power of God as you wield the sword of God's word to break the chains of sin in your life and in the life of those who are separated from Christ? When we do that, yes, we step over the line into enemy territory. And God may in His mercy and grace and wisdom permit us to get hit by other people. But I believe we can go into this world with absolute confidence that God will protect us, that He has delivered us, that we are secure against the demonic realm. I don't think that means we go stirring them up. I don't mean that, think that means that we go learning everything there is to learn about them, but it means we go with the gospel of Jesus Christ, proclaiming it freely with no fear. Because Jesus reigns. And He will protect us for His glory. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we need this courage. We need to be challenged about the holiness of our life or the lack thereof. We need, Father, to be courageous to proclaim Your truth and to let loose Your Word. And I pray that we'd never treat it as a magic formula but I ask that you will continue to use your word and spirit to sever chains of sin. For those of us struggling in sin, I pray that today would be a day of turning. I pray that there would be someone in this assembly today who would say of the pleasures of this world, of sin that has its tentacles wrapped around their heart, that they would say, I want the power of God. And I'll let go of the sin that's holding me back. By the grace and the power of Christ, I will turn in repentance and change. I pray, Father, that you would work in hearts today to that end. If there is someone among us who is bound in the chains of sin and is unconverted, I ask that you would move that person to see the light of the gospel of Christ and that Jesus can free any sinner from any sin for eternity. I ask that there would be a turning in faith to the salvation of Christ who has defeated death through His resurrection. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, asking that You will use us this week to carry out that power and to be representatives who get the attention of the demonic realm and who know of Your grace in our lives to protect and to enable us to proclaim the gospel. Through Jesus we pray, amen.